Hello and welcome to the Psychedelic Christian Podcast, the conversation at the crossroads of faith and psychedelics. I'm Clint, your host, and I'm thankful and excited that you've chosen to join us. Enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 13 of the Psychedelic Christian Podcast. Since the release of our last episode, I've honestly been overwhelmed by the number of people contacting me about the podcast and the near doubling of the total downloads. I cannot begin to tell you how much I appreciate all of you who are sharing the show with others. I know how controversial the topic can be, especially among Christians. And I imagine that many of you listening are not comfortable sharing your interest in the topic of psychedelics with your friends and possibly even with your significant other due to the stigma surrounding these substances perpetuated by the war on drugs. Believe me, I understand. I'm still very cautious and pragmatic when and how I share my interest in the topic with my own friends, family, and fellow Christians. But whenever possible, I beseech you to share this podcast with someone. The best way for us to learn about the potential of psychedelics for physical, psychological, and spiritual healing is by creating a space for healthy discussion on the topic, based on science and experience, not propaganda. So please share the podcast with a friend, or on social media if you're comfortable with that. And this episode might be a particularly good icebreaker, because today's guest shares the undeniable positive impact of psychedelic treatment had on their marriage and family. Also, this podcast is a labor of love, and the only thing preventing me from releasing more content is freeing up the time to record interviews and produce the episodes. So if you enjoy the show, please subscribe and give it a five-star rating and review on whichever platform you listen. And if that's not an option, please take a moment and visit Apple Podcasts and give it a rating and review there. Apple is still the largest source of podcasts, and sharing your rating there will help the algorithms recommend the podcast to others, allowing us to reach new listeners. And if you really want to help me produce more shows, visit thepsychedelicchristianpodcast.com slash support, where you can make a donation to the show. There's even an option to make your donation anonymous, if that makes you more comfortable. But honestly, I'd love to know who's supporting the show, so I can properly give thanks for your support. And if you would like to reach out to me, the best method is always through email. Contact at thepsychedelicchristianpodcast.com Today we welcome Amber Capone to the Psychedelic Christian Podcast. Amber is co-founder and executive director of the nonprofit organization VETS, Veterans Exploring Treatment Solutions. Every day, an average of around 20 U.S. veterans intentionally take their own lives. That's about 20 veterans every single day. This doesn't even account for the ones who slowly, intentionally or unintentionally take their own lives due to substance abuse and reckless lifestyles. Veterans have a 50% higher risk of suicide than their civilian peers. These statistics are tragic and startling, but they don't even account for the enormous traumatic and generational toll the suffering of veterans takes on their families and society, or the fact that veterans make up nearly 10% of America's homeless population, and that by the year 2030, 
veteran suicides are projected to account for approximately $221 billion in public expense. But Amber and the team at VETS are diligently working to make positive and lasting change in the lives of veterans suffering from PTSD, traumatic brain injury, depression, insomnia, anxiety, and suicidal ideation. Amber shares with us the downward spiral experienced by her family following her husband's retirement from the U.S. Navy, how her Christian faith gave her the strength to persevere, and how when all hope was lost, a last-ditch effort to give psychedelic medicine a try was the catalyst for her husband's miraculous recovery and their inspiration for starting a nonprofit to help others. Amber Capone, welcome to the Psychedelic Christian Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Clint. Thank you so much for having me. This is um, a really exciting opportunity for me to be able to talk about my faith and aspects of our story and vets and all that we're doing today. It's really the driving force behind, I'd say, all of it. And yet I never really talk about it. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. We appreciate you joining us. It's my understanding that you were raised in a Christian family. Maybe you could begin by just telling us a little bit about your early life, your spiritual experiences and influences. I was raised in a Christian household. Um, I was raised in a very small town in Southern Illinois. My grandfathers were very hard workers. One was uh, owned an excavation company and the other grew up on a dairy farm. And so hard work and family and God were part of my life always. I grew up in such a small town that I didn't realize that not everyone was a Christian. (laughs) That's how sheltered I was. Um, But, you know, not anything super extreme. You know, we went to church on Sundays, sometimes on Wednesdays. But for the most part, you know, we prayed before meals and everything revolved around God and family and you know, just doing what's right and hard work. You know, I don't get back there too much now. I couldn't see myself living there as an adult, but man, I am so blessed to be from a, a town like that. Yeah. When you're raised in uh, a culture dominated by Christianity, you know, it's hard to really see the contrast. Mm-hmm. Um, you just kind of project that as normal everyday life. That's right. But for better or worse, that's, you know, that's not really everyone's experience. So sometimes it's much later in life when you realize how kind of sheltered and and blessed you were to grow up in that kind of environment. Yeah, it was very, um, it was very pure. And I can't remember when I realized like there was a bigger world, but I was probably in college. I mean, it was, yeah, it was a very small, wonderful town. Well, where did, where did Marcus enter the picture? How did you and him meet? So I met Marcus when I was in high school. My dad was his head football coach. And so he recruited him out of New York to come play at a school in Southern Illinois. So I was still in high school and um, I'd heard about him. I'd heard about him in the paper and there was just a lot of buzz like oh there's this you know big good looking quarterback from New York. And I guess we were together a couple of different instances and didn't even realize it or he saw me but I didn't know who he was and vice versa anyway I was 17 and it was right before my senior year of high school so we dated my entire senior year and then I ended up changing my college plans to go from to the University of Illinois to Southern Illinois where he played 
that too, you know, like I didn't realize you could go to school outside of your (laughs) state. So University of Illinois was kind of like the pinnacle of where everyone wanted to go. But as soon as I met him, I knew that there was something special about him. And um, I totally changed my plans. How did y'all's relationship, you know, move forward? And how did how did he find himself joining the military? This is a pre 9-11, right? Yeah, it was. We met in 97. I graduated in 98 and started college. He was approaching graduation in 2000 and he did not know what he wanted to do. He couldn't imagine you know, putting on a suit and tie and he just was kind of, I don't know, it wasn't lost, but he certainly wasn't feeling like he, he definitely didn't want to go to a desk job. And so he decided to join the military. And at that point, I decided that it probably wasn't going to be workable for us to stay together. And I, we'd been together since I was in high school. So, you know, I was still young. I wanted to be in a sorority. I wanted to kind of experience college life single. And I we, we amicably decided to break up. And then um, I found out that I was pregnant with our son. So uh, that changed everything. You turn. Yeah. 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 Wow. <laughs> so, so major change of plans there. So now you've got to think about either moving with him or staying behind. I mean, I guess he's going to go, you know, somewhere and do basic training and deployments. How did, how did life, family life in the military look? Well, yeah, not only did he say he wanted to go into the military, it was never actually about the military. It was about becoming a SEAL. And the, you know, he had met someone at SIU during his senior year that was um, in the ROTC program or something. I'm not sure what happened. I think he was a SEAL and he had some sort of like leave granted to go back to college and Marcus met him there. And so he was an active SEAL, but he was in college and he took Marcus under his wing and I think told him about the SEAL teams and Marcus started watching documentaries and reading books. And once he made up his mind to do that, nothing was going to change his mind. So there was no 9-11. I didn't know what a SEAL was. It looked like really hard training, but it, you know, I just heard military. And in World War II, my great-grandmother had five brothers that fought in the war. And two of them died. One became a POW, and I, or maybe three of them died. I can't remember. I should definitely know that. But anyway, I was raised in a family that really valued military you know, really paid reverence to my great uncles who were lost in the war. My grandma had a brother that served as well. And, you know, he was definitely affected by his military service for the rest of his life. And so everything was kind of attributed back to that. And I had this understanding that military, you know, there was something really special about military service and it could also be very detrimental. I came from such a small town that the kids in my class that joined the military generally did so to go to college for free. So I didn't understand. I, it was very confusing to me why people served in the military, but I knew it was something special. I just didn't think it was for me. And so when he decided to do this and to become a SEAL pre 9-11, I was just, yeah, I had no idea what to expect. 
And the U-turn like that you referenced was really the first testing point of my faith because I had been raised in such an environment where faith was just interwoven. You don't even realize what role it plays in your life. You know, the people around me were really, really amazing, good people. They didn't have much, but they had everything. And so I didn't understand. I understood faith from a perspective of good people not necessarily like this really interactive relationship with a living God. And so when I got pregnant, um, I, I was, you know, I viewed that at the time as just like this giant curveball that could potentially derail my whole life. I didn't really know, you know, I kind of wanted to be single. I wanted to live in a city. I wanted to, I was going to school for a degree in like, um, clothing and textiles, fashion, merchandising. Like you just wanted to live that single, like fun lifestyle of independence. I've, I've always been independent. And um, finding out that I was pregnant really gave me pause and made me assess everything from a lens that I hadn't done before because this is exact same thing happened to my parents. My mom got pregnant with me when my dad was uh, they were both in college and you know, it totally like derailed their lives in a way. And I was able to see them for the first time through human eyes that they did the best they could. And that's, you know, with the circumstances that they had and they chose me, they chose life, they chose the hard path. And so as I find myself in this situation in 2000 I was getting a lot of pressure from the people who knew that I was too young that I was too um the relationship with Marcus was not going to work it was you know he was going into the military and it wasn't the right time to have a baby and you know admittedly I I contemplated what if I ended this pregnancy and I just couldn't do it I just couldn't do it. I, I, I remember one day I got in my car, just started driving and screaming and crying and praying and just like completely surrendering. And when I left you know, out of the driveway, I was like frantic, overwhelmed. It was the worst circumstance of my life to that point. And when I got out of the car, I had surrendered every single thing to God. And I was so clear headed at that point that I was going to um, have this baby and raise this baby, even if it meant doing it alone, because Marcus was very locked on going into the military and he's getting a lot of pressure from his parents that it was not the time to be a father. And so we actually spent several months apart during my pregnancy. And towards the very end, he, you know, I, I obviously chosen the baby and um, he came back around when I was oh gosh, almost nine months pregnant. And he was like, I just can't do it. I just can't do it. I'm, I've got to do what's right. I've got to man up and you know, be here for you and be here for this baby. And so you know, from that day forward, we were a family unit. We just had no idea what we were getting ourselves into. So fast forward you know, to today, that is what kept us together. And you know, it, it is Caden, our son, and what that did for our family is everything. It's why we're still together today. And, you know, I just, 
think how close it could have been, you know, how many people are being touched today through the work that we're able to help facilitate because of, you know, this circumstance of our lives. I just, I, I hope that that serves as encouragement to, you know, anyone listening that, you know, this, this thing that I thought would derail my life has become the blessing that led to my life's work. Wow, that's powerful. It's, it's sad because so many young women find themselves in that position you were in. And even though they all know this has happened to so many people and they all know that there are probably services out there to help people, it must also feel so isolating. You must feel really alone in that, in that kind of circumstance also. But I'm assuming that if you knew, already knew that about your parents' story, maybe there was a lot of support there. Did you feel, did you feel supported when you made your decision to keep the baby? And I felt very supported, especially by my mom. Um, I didn't tell anyone for the longest time. I didn't even know that I was pregnant until I was 10 or 11 weeks along, um, which is pretty far. And I didn't tell her for even more weeks. And so Marcus and his parents knew, and they're putting in a lot of pressure on me. He was getting a lot of pressure from them. And, and I was, you know, really fighting this alone. And uh, one morning I just, I am like, I've got to tell my mom. And I would, I had stayed the night at her house and the next morning we were in the kitchen and I just pointed, I couldn't even talk. I just pointed to my stomach and she knew immediately. And she, yeah, that she told my dad because I just, I, I cut Marcus was his football player. And at that point we'd been together for two and a half years. It's like, you know, we had, we, we clearly had, um, you know, decent relationship. And yet my dad was still not supportive of me even dating Marcus. And now I'm pregnant with a baby out of wedlock. And, oh, it was it was a really tough time, but they did help. They, they helped a lot. And, you know, they told me, and I knew because of their faith that they could hold on to hope that this would, you know, have a happy outcome and they weren't going to leave my side ever. For what it's worth, I'm proud of you for having that strength and that, Thank you. you know, integrity and in, in light of, of all your plans and all the social pressure and everything, you know, to, to move forward and, uh, and into the unknown, you know, mm. without any, no guarantees, you know, it was quite unknown. <laughs> and so we, uh, when Marcus came around and we decided to give this a try as a family, it was May of 2000. No, that was March of 2000. I went down on my spring break from college in March or April. Marcus came home because he was doing an internship and um, I went to visit him at his internship over my college spring break. And then um, he came home from the internship in May, graduated college uh, a week after he returned. I had our son 
that was May 13th of 2000. In June, he enlisted in the military and he was gone to boot camp. And I saw him again in August for his graduation. From there, he had to go to another school in San Diego and then um, you know, like be certain that he was going to be picked up for this buds class. And at that point, I was able to come out and meet him. So I moved to California in April of 2001, shortly before our son turned one. From that point, it was like he was classing up for buds. And I had no idea. I knew that it was like the world's toughest training, but I didn't have a clue as to what we were getting ourselves into. And we ended up living in an apartment building right next to the Bud's training compound. And so, you know, that was such a blessing because we were broke as a joke. He, his paychecks at that point were like $1,081 every two weeks. And um, we have here, we have this family. He's like, there's not many people in his buds class that are married, let alone have kids. I think there was like one other, two others. We ended up living right next to the compound. So he would get up, you know, 4 a.m., 5 a.m. arrival, I think, and, and just walk from our apartment building around to the buds compound. And then I would take Caden out in the stroller and we would watch him train. I would climb the sand berm. I would take photos. I can't believe I did that. I would never, never be able to do that now. But, um, you know, we watched him train. It was grueling. It was the first time I'd ever lived away from my tiny hometown, even though instinctively all along, I knew that I would leave there as soon as I was able. So we moved to uh, Coronado from the first time out of this tiny town that had one blinking light and I guess technically one stoplight. 3,500 people. And I'm living in, you know, Coronado, California with a baby and a husband going through buds and everything was going along really well until September, of course, of that year, whenever the towers came down. Marcus was the first buds class to graduate post 9-11. He graduated in October of 2001. And I had such mixed feelings at that point. I'm like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm scared because I want him safe and I want, I don't want anything to happen to him. And, you know, I, I was confused because it's like, well, is he going to leave tomorrow? You know, what happens in these situations? Now he's in the military things and wherever. And then I was like, weirdly happy is not the right word. I was weirdly like feeling like, well, he'll get to do, he'll actually get to work. He'll actually get to do what Navy SEALs are meant to do. I knew a little bit at that time. But I had no clue, no clue what the next you know, decade would hold. So it was more like a sense of pride and excitement about him getting to kind of fulfill this, you know, this important job that he'd been plant training so hard for. Yes, that and just sheer like American get in there and get after it because no one should attack this nation like that you know like the, I was so I was so convicted after 9-11 um, and so proud of our military overall yeah speaking of that like what can you share a little bit about military family life to people who maybe never experienced that I'm assuming there's a lot of family type like uh, atmosphere where it's like everyone's on board everyone has the same mission you know, in a community aspect, 
you know, everyone is convicted and encouraging for, you know, the, the service men and women and their families. I'm, I'm assuming that I've never experienced that, but I have, you know, friends that were in the military, so I can kind of understand. I guess there's just a lot of reinforcement for, you know, similar values and community. There definitely is. Um, the military, you know, we immediately came into naval social warfare. So, you know, we didn't have the same experience as a lot of military families in terms of moving from place to place. Marcus had a really straight shot through SEAL training and we were stationed on the East Coast. So we left California uh, in 2002 for the East Coast and we lived in Virginia Beach for most of his service. And I will absolutely say that the community there, especially um, like this wartime community was unbelievably close. I feel like, you know, that was one of the, the biggest blessings of a really challenging time was to have other families who understood the fight. You know, I could call a girlfriend or a girlfriend could call me and I would know, or you just say, listen, I know that your husband's gone and I know that you need some time. So I'm getting your kids and we're having a sleepover and just don't even like, just don't. <laughs> so you know, the camaraderie amongst the guys, this, you know, SEALs and the camaraderie amongst the wives was really, really strong. We definitely take care of one another, even still. And I will get into vets and what vets does, but, you know, it is the core essence of the vets mission. It's why we started this. Even after service, it is everything revolves around community. So Marcus was probably gone a lot. And so you're oh, yeah. probably There's that too. <laughs> you're you're reliant on that community almost like an extended family, really. Um, they, yeah, yeah, they really did um, become family. You know, Christmases and holidays and parties, and it, it absolutely because you start to feel like the rest of the world doesn't understand, and they're the only people who really do. But he was gone a, a lot, and you know the the higher he climbed in his career required more dedication and commitment and focus and yeah, easily like pushing 300 days a year. Like it is impossible to have a normal family dynamic or normal marriage under those circumstances. So you kind of, and I mean, really everyone relies on that community to kind of reinforce the connection between the spouses that are there alone and like you probably couldn't, ha most people couldn't handle that if they were on their own. You know, that community reinforcement is probably very, probably essential. Oh, for sure. That is actually something very early on when Marcus, I think I naively thought that we just had to make it through Bud's training. And it's it was like, just I own the prize. Yeah, just that six months. And then after that, I was like, oh my gosh, this is a, just a perpetual cycle of coming and going and getting to the next objective. And now there's war deployments mixed in. It was naive of me to think like that. But, you know, it, I, I noticed very early on that there were women. I mean, I, I remember like going to one of the first spouse party I went to and I could see that there were very bitter women. Like it would be very easy to fall into the resentment trap. There were women that were just bashing their husbands. And from an outsider looking in, like 
you, you know, I could understand that, but I also believed in the mission and I felt that in my core. And so I actually noticed that there were spouses who acted in love and grace and dignity and didn't stoop to, you know, this, this other way of being. And, um, I thought I want to be like them because if they can do it, even if the ones who don't have a good attitude can do it, I can do it. And if someone else can do it, I can do it. And so that really also sustained me. Were you a part of any church or faith community during those years? Yeah, I, I took the kids to a non-denominational church. Um, Marcus rarely went because he wasn't home, but the kids and I went to a great church in Virginia Beach. Yeah. I'm assuming in a, an environment like even there, somewhere like Virginia Beach, um, big Navy town, there's probably a lot of military community within the churches as well. I never got involved to that extent. We really, we just went on Sundays, the kids went to Sunday school. I went to the main service, but um, I, they also went to a, a Christian preschool and kindergarten. So I had a lot more connection with like, you know, one-on-one small type of connection, small group and groups of women uh, at that preschool. So people could probably learn a lot about Marcus's story and his experience, you know, by maybe investigating his story on, on other platforms. Maybe you could just begin by telling us when his struggles began and what kind of impact that had on the family. So Marcus has always been blessed with the gift of charisma. Everybody loves him. They always have. He was like the life of the party, but just super cool and laid back. I, I had never met anyone like him. And it was like no other guy in my life had ever existed once I met him. And he was just everything. And yet he was raised by two people that, you know, didn't, they had like very different upbringings than my parents and in a very different part of the world in New York. So when we met, you know, faith to me was something that was like interwoven faith to him was completely foreign. We ended up, you know, finding commonality in enough things to stay together, but um, we definitely lived very opposite lives. And he has always had this uncanny ability to set a goal and attain it relatively easily. (laughs) And so he was very focused on his personal achievements within, you know, the military. And he had gotten to Naval Social Warfare Development Group, which is basically like the pinnacle of a SEAL's career. And I felt like he was absolutely cut out for that command. He was thriving there. And yet every deployment that they would go on, one or two, it seemed like weren't coming back. There were a series of years where the number of deaths were just unprecedented. And that's when I started to notice some changes. But at the same time, we were together so infrequently that I just, I felt like I didn't even really know him anymore. And that fun, charismatic, like life of the party guy was being replaced by someone who was very detached, um, short fused. He was present, but he was not. 
and he was becoming like a little bit well he was becoming calloused and like a little bit sinister you know just like kind of I don't know like downtrodden which was totally opposite for him we went through a huge testing period in our marriage in 2008 following the deaths of one of his best friends and then two other members of his small unit I felt like the wheels started coming off then we dealt with you know those deaths and some personal things and I really 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 felt like our family needed to reconnect and we needed a break yet I never thought that he would ever leave the command that he was at and there was a part of me that like totally understood that and I didn't want that for him. I accepted that he was good at his job and he loved what he was doing. And the family always had to come second or third and, or, you know, further down the line. And so I was kind of okay with that, but I also needed to know that a break was on the horizon and all that pain that I was carrying from his deployments and absence and this, you know, issue that we were working through in our marriage, I I knew that we needed a reconnection time. And I just wanted to know that that was coming at that point. He had, you know, 12 years left to, to retirement. I, I never thought he wouldn't do 20 years. And, um, he said, I'm not going to go back on my commitment to the command, but as soon as I can take a break, I will and focus on the family. And so that was like the deal. You know, I hadn't given him an ultimatum, like it's me or your job. I would never do that. But I did say, I want, you've got to prioritize the family. I don't think I can last. And so in 2010, he left the command, which was a huge deal for him. There been so many days along the way that we've regretted that or like you know had second thoughts about doing that i see now that this timeline is in perfect alignment with everything that we're doing today and it was necessary in order to like prepare the way if you will but um at the time it was very confusing and so the struggles that had started in 2008 were intensified in 2010 um, when we left virginia beach i didn't know what to expect i just needed a breather and when we got to california for this, you know, shore duty break where he would become a SEAL instructor, I think I just very naively thought that we would be a normal family again. And it was complete opposite of that. There was no indication that we even knew how to behave as a normal family. I, I could definitely survive, you know, several months as a solo parent and help my, my girlfriends with their kids. But I couldn't tell you what a family did on a weekend in, in America. And we tried to do it and it was just so awkward. So this is a major transition. So he was deployed so often that um, I'm guessing you really didn't have to get to the root of things because you could kind of right. put it in like vacation mode, daddy's home yeah. for like a week and then he's gone again. So you could kind of just uh, not to be dismissive or pose it in a negative way. Cause we all kind of do that. We like, you know, you put on your happy face, get through a tough situation. So you can, you know, continue on with, with the mission. But when you have to go from that to daily, daily, you know, family life, I'm assuming that was a radical transition at home. 
and it you moved huge. to the other side of the country as well. So <laughs> yeah, oh, leaving huge. all your, you know, your connections there behind and having to establish new community somewhere else. That was a huge part of it. My friends had become my support system and I still, you know, it was never about the place. It was always about the people and the people that you know, you'd gone through so much tragedy with and that you were so connected to on a daily basis. You know, we worked out together. We shopped in the same grocery stores. We go to Target. You see five friends, your kids play sports together. You see each other on the weekends. We had a pool. So everyone used to come over to our house. And then, you know, we come to California and it's like the four of us, just the four of us. And Marcus had lost uh, his community and purpose and even though he was still in the teams, you know, it was very, very different. He'd come off the bullet train and now it was just like kind of wandering around like lost, you know, what do I do with myself? I think that that is when everything really started to escalate um, for us, you know, personally and as a family for him as an individual, it was the first time that he was put on an SSRI uh, to help with depression or mood. And I think that the the highs and lows of 2011 definitely played a part in some of the confusion and undoing. There was the joy of the Osama bin Laden raid. There's also regret that his squadron was part of that, you know, not in a super direct way, but enough that he would have been there and there was the massive tragedy of losing 30 plus seals and i think it was 30 seals and a dog on the helicopter crash uh, extortion 17 so it went from like the highest high in the community to the lowest low and we realized somehow that we were just playing russian roulette it we he wanted to go back to the command after his instructor billet. And I totally supported that because even though I wanted this idea of a family and a break, it was not proving to be what I thought it would be. Um, if anything, it was even more detrimental. And I, I only knew how to survive in the dysfunction. So we went from, we're definitely going back to Virginia beach to uh, it's probably best to get out of the Navy. And in 2013, he did that he processed out, he went to a month long um, program called NICO where they gave him a head to toe check and, you know, told him all of the things that he was struggling with. And I think that that was also the first time that he came back with multiple pharmaceuticals, like seven or eight. And at that point, what did, what did they tell you he was actually dealing with, you know, PTSD. It was always PTSD. And you know, he, he had enough bodily things, like he was just going to get out of the military and he had enough injuries and accumulated, you know, issues over the years that he was able to be medically retired. So that was a, a massive plus because we needed that. I mean, he was not in a way where he could go on and thrive, uh, you know, right. beyond the military at that point. So we skipped a lot of Marcus's story. Maybe real briefly, we should just mention that he was a a breacher. So he's using high, you know, impact and explosives to break down doors, walls, things of that nature. So there's probably a lot of concussive, you know, impact on the human body. And likewise, in a war zone, you know, you're seeing people lose their lives probably 
on a regular basis. And um, I mean, PTSD is such a, a broad category. I mean, yeah. I guess um, it's kind of one of those nebulous things you stick on somebody when you really can't determine what all their symptoms are. And, but you assume that because of their traumatic experiences, you know, they just have this collection of negative ailments that de debilitate them. So. Yeah. And that to me was a diagnosis that I didn't fully understand. I felt like it was used too frequently. Everyone I knew was throwing around the term like, oh, PTSD, PTSD, PTSD. It kind of lost its oomph. It was like mm -hmm. everything was PTSD. And so, you know, I'm, I'm like doing my own self-assessment of like, you know, this entire situation, knowing as many SEALs as I knew at the time, like, I, I'm not saying they're not traumatized. I'm not saying PTSD does not exist, but I'm saying that my husband really looked forward to deployments. And I have an aunt who was in a really horrible car crash and doesn't like to drive anymore. She doesn't even like to ride in a car. So to me, you know, the PTSD was more encompassing of, you know, avoidance of a traumatic event or having like massive hypervigilance. Marcus was still very much like running towards the danger and like loving doing that. And I just, I'm like, Oh, I, maybe I don't fully understand PTSD, but there's something more, it seems. So what kind of medications was he given? You know, at first it was the SSRIs and then it was like, Oh, something for headaches, something for nightmares, something for waking up, something for going to sleep, something to combat a symptom of something. And, you know, there's, they're constantly changing, tweaking, upping, downing the dosing. And then it's like, oh, this, you know, this might cause this, that, or the other. Oh, but we have a prescription for that. So it was just, you know, they were just throwing medications at whatever he was dealing with. And in some cases it was causing him to decline even more rapidly. So he's in training, he's training other SEALs there in California, right? Is that that was his job there? Yes. Did he, did he find that fulfilling or was that? Um... No, <laughs> no, that was very, very difficult for him. Um, but he definitely, he shifted around a couple of times. He definitely found a training position. He was running um, close quarters combat for all new incoming BUD students well, they were, they were through buds at that point. They were in like the advanced training portion, but um, he found more fulfillment in that. Marcus has always been the most amazing gifted patient teacher. And he really has a knack for teaching people, but for also being just like this incredible leader. He doesn't even have to really try. I don't even know that he knows he's doing it, but people just look up to him. They always have and uh, respect him. And so I've had so many guys that come through the pipeline for bets say to me like, oh, Marcus is a buds instructor. I will never forget. Or he hammered me for this, that, and the other. But, you know, the, one guy actually told him a couple of days ago, like, I don't know if you remember me or not, but you made me carry kettlebells up a hill because I you know, messed up in the house or something. And he was like, I'll never forget how bad that you know, was. But I also will never forget that you drove halfway up the hill and got out and carried him with me and taught me a lesson all the way to the top. And that is who Marcus is. 
So he did find more fulfillment in that role. Well, being retired from medically retired from the military and coming home with this bag full of medications, um, was he able to transition into civilian life in a, in a healthy and productive way or? No, <laughs> no. Um, at that point, the wheels really started to come off because once you're out of the military ecosystem, you no longer have your community in any capacity. You no longer have your purpose at all. You've got to now reinvent yourself and you're, you know, at that point he was approaching 40. You don't have a paycheck. It's very, very, very unnerving. The safety net is gone. You're no longer in the military community even. And if you are in the military community, you're seeing your friends who are still in the atmosphere and you feel like an outsider all of a sudden. So we ended up moving. Virginia Beach for us just was, it was so traumatic. Uh, so many deaths had happened there. I felt like there was just a black cloud hanging over Virginia Beach, even though I loved living there when we did there was part of me that was just like, I know we can't go back. So it was daunting to feel like you don't have a home. You know, we would never go to New York. Marcus is like the least New Yorker, New Yorker I've ever met. We would never go back to my tiny little hometown. Um, we would never go back to Virginia beach. We, you know, barely like San Diego even is triggering and traumatic. So it's like, where do we go? <clears throat> he tried to take a job in Beverly Hills. Um, which could not have been any more opposite of the community that we were so accustomed to. I think part of that subconsciously, he was probably like, I'm getting as far away from military gun toting. Like I'm going to just go completely opposite and pretend like that didn't happen. So you get the banking job in Beverly Hills. That was terrible. He was definitely, I mean, there were definitely good parts of that but it was not fulfilling to him. He was craving more of like the adrenaline startup culture. It may or may not survive. It's just like that adrenaline fix. And so he took a job with a startup company on the East coast. We're living in LA and paying California taxes and he's never here. So our kids were also approaching their adolescent years. And I just thought, I don't want to raise kids in LA. I, my dad had just taken a coaching job at the university of texas and everything was calling us to texas in fact i i remember sitting in my dad's backyard when he was at louisville and he's marcus was getting out of the military and my dad's like well you know what are you gonna do and i said i don't know what we're gonna do dad i feel like we're gonna end up in dallas and he's like dallas you know he was not even this is two years before he ends up in Texas. And I'm like, yeah, I just feel like we're going to end up in Dallas. He gets the job in Austin. We look all around Austin, cannot find anything to save our lives. And so um, our son was going to follow in Marcus's footsteps and become a you know, big Texas football player. And so we looked at, you know, what football schools are the best and ended up right outside of Dallas. When we moved there in 2014, I felt like we could finally be settled. We bought our dream home. It was on a golf course. The kids were enrolled in the top school district in Texas. And, you know, Caden was going to be this football player. And my dad was down in Austin. Life seemed like it was finally going to be 
good. It's going to be settled. Marcus had a good job. Well, he has always grown up with access to the beach. <laughs> Marcus has grew up across the street from the beach. And Texas was the first time that he didn't have that. He couldn't release, you know, there was no outlet for him. And so he, we lived on a golf course. He joined the country club and took up golf and took up drinking. And that as a, had become as a hobby. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, that had become a growing concern and it just started to rapidly escalate. Um, at this point, our son, Caden was 15, 16. Those were really tough years for him. It was just a constant escalation between him and Marcus and um, th things were really spiraling out of control pretty quickly. So is, I mean, are y'all, are y'all finding success career-wise there though, or things positive in that regard or? So I was a real estate agent in California and um, really, you know, had, had pretty much overnight success with that. And just thought that I would move to Texas and replicate my real estate career. I was also still selling in California. So, you know, I'm selling real estate in two states and Marcus is a part of the startup. Our son also started getting sick during this time. He had, you know, dealt with some chronic illness up until we moved to Texas, but in Texas, it really started to escalate as well. And um, even though we were having success in our careers and it seemed like our personal life was finally leveling out, there was certainly a storm brewing around all of this, around the group of people that Marcus was interacting with at the country club, around my professional life, around our son's health. And it just continually escalated to a point of, uh, it, was, it, it got pretty dicey in 2016. It was pretty much at a, a boiling point. I mean, how did that manifest? Ultimately, how did you resolve that situation. It seems like it was, you know, spiraling and kind of out of control, a lot of tension, was, I imagine. It, yeah, there was a lot. Um, there was a lot. You know, I, I, at some point I took a leave of absence to care for Caden, who was becoming more and more health challenged. He was also becoming more and more disobedient. And both of those things were non-starters for Marcus. He just couldn't come to terms with, you know, where, where things were at with our son. We, the wedge just kept driving deeper and deeper between us. And, um, you know, I, I was really utilizing tactics of shame and guilt, blame, threatening, belittling, you know, he, he was very unfulfilled professionally. The startup didn't work out. Go figure. He just didn't know what he wanted to do next. And, you know, he was searching and I was on this leave of absence because our son was sick. So, you know, our finances were a disaster and the drinking escalated and I, the bad behavior from our son escalated and our poor daughter was just trying to be like a normal you know, teenager, it was difficult. The move was difficult for them. The town was 
pretty tough to fit into for both of them, especially our son. And so all of a sudden, again, it felt like a nightmare. You know, we just thought we found peace. We just thought we found our forever home. We just thought we found security. And it's not, it's not that. It's something is you know, really going to have to shift here. The shame and the blame and all the things that I was throwing at Marcus, you know, certainly were not helping his condition. Uh, I was noticing things that were troubling, but I was also writing it off as, you know, stress or transition. Um, he would forget things. He would become, you know, like totally irate. He would, we would have really meaningful conversations that he would not remember meaningful in, you know, like about our taxes, we're going to file a tax extension. This is the plan. This is when the meeting is. And then the next morning, uh, what are we going to do about our taxes? Like, it was just, you know, it was, it was becoming really scary what he was experiencing. Um, One morning he looked, he was trying to get out the door for a flight and he just could not executive function to save his life. It was like, you know, timelines and packing and itineraries and he couldn't, he couldn't make it all come together. And this is someone who'd been, you know, really, really regimented in, in polyfunctional organizational systems and everything has a place. And, you know, he's not OCD or anything like that, but he's, you know, very, very buttoned up. And he looked at me one morning, he's trying to get out the door for a flight and he was sweating profusely and his eyes were gigantic. And he goes, I don't know what's wrong with my brain. I don't know what's wrong with my brain. And I was really starting to become afraid because he wasn't, he, he would go out, he would be with his buddies, you know, he would wake up hungover and he would figure out the day and you know, I would just shame him all day long. And I just thought everything was to do with PTSD or his friend group or, you know, drinking. And I wasn't seeing that there was more beneath the surface that he was perhaps not in control of. And so as I started to see some of these cognitive deficits, like he couldn't figure out how to wrap a Christmas tree with lights, I started to get really, really, really concerned. And so I was just trying to think of when like the perfect storm hit. I think it was right after that Christmas, I committed to going back into therapy, which I had seen a therapist throughout my life, just, you know, as like not burdening my friends and talking aimlessly, but really working with a professional and getting tangible results from our sessions. And so I just resolved myself that following year that I was going to start seeing a therapist again. At the same time, you know, clearly my tactics aren't working with Marcus. Things are still escalating. On our first session, I just tried to make it all about, you know, poor me. I was living in a victim mindset. I had become so disconnected and angry and bitter and everything that I was doing, you know, Uh, the things out of my mouth as a wife were just rooted in nothing but my own anger and bitterness. And when I sat down with her, like all of the other therapists in the past, I wanted to just complain and make it about me being a victim and Marcus being wrong. And I wanted someone to just say, he's so wrong. You know, you're so right. I thought that's what therapy was just getting it out. 
And she basically said to me, you have one session to complain about your husband. That's it. From next session forward, this is about you. And she also said, I want you to go get a journal and start journaling. And your first assignment is to list how you feel today. I've got now bins of journals, but that first journal said, you know, something along the lines of like, my marriage is a wreck. My son is a wreck. My finances are a wreck. And I was completely hopeless. And she happened to be the only therapist in my area that took our insurance plan. And she was also a Christian therapist. And so I thought I was going to complain about my husband and what she ended up doing was tethering me back to God. And for the longest time, I was in this like descent because she was not allowing me to circle the drain in my misery. She was making me really take ownership and really surrender. She's been such a blessing to me. And um, she was a conduit for me. You know, I did the work. God worked on my heart, but he worked through her. And so her instruction to me of, you know, getting this journal practice in place, creating quiet time. These are all things that she instructed me to do. And because I'm a doer and a list checker, I did it and it worked over time. I see that, you know, committing to that practice worked. And she also, I'll get into this in just a little bit, but she also helped me unpack Marcus's experience without having any knowledge or endorsement of psychedelics. I had a freak out after his experience and she helped me walk through that. But getting into that, it started with me. It started with me creating this space and place every single morning and going back every single morning. So I start every day with my quality time, Bible time. So I'm just sitting and receiving and reading my Bible and I'm sitting with this journal and just getting flooded with emotion and feelings and going all the way back to my childhood and listening to the promptings on my spirit of understanding who God created me to be and understanding that, you know, I listed out all of the characteristics of myself going back as far as I can remember. I've always been a fighter. I've always been convicted. I've always felt that my life has purpose. I've always felt the presence of God in a way that like my life isn't my own. I don't even know how to describe that. And I was sitting and you're writing these things and getting out of victimhood. I'm realizing, you know, during this time that this voice of victimization has kept me stuck. I've got to own it. I've got to own it and I've got to sit with it and I've got to allow God to change my heart and change my, my viewpoint. It very much started with me. It very much started with my childhood. And then it got into trauma. It got into, you know, some of the things that I had endured and, you know, I felt like I was going down, 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 down as I started this process, but I was committed to doing it every day and I allowed myself to feel emotion. So if I wanted to cry, I cried. Sometimes I laughed, sometimes I screamed, sometimes I 
sat. Sometimes I got nothing. Sometimes I would sit for 15 minutes and sometimes I would sit for three hours, but I showed up for myself every single day. And because I had taken this leave of absence to care for Caden, I was able to start every day at my table, at my kitchen table, with my Bible, with my journal, with my quiet time. And there wasn't a day that I didn't, I didn't do that. And so I finally hit rock bottom and um, I allowed myself to sit with it. And then I started making the ascent every single day and every single ounce of pain and every single thing that I had gone through up until that point was, was absolutely pivotal in reaching that place. As I started to ascend, I, I started to see Marcus through eyes of grace that were completely different than I'd ever seen him before. And of course, I'm still seeing Diana, my therapist. I'm still going back to her every single week. I'm working through things with her. Marcus is spiraling out of control more as I have become the eye of the storm in the middle. So I have created this calm for myself and for my family. But as I'm becoming calm, the storm is really picking up around me. And so at that point, you know, Marcus was still going to VA doctors, still on the medication gambit, like, you know, still having the cognitive issues. He'd forget to take his medicines. He would take them incorrectly. That would cause a a series of symptoms and problems. And so I thought, I I don't know if this is sustainable, but I've got to start thinking outside the box. Right around that time in 2016, we were flying home from the Amen Clinic where our son was being treated for his like mystery chronic illness. And I was getting on the plane and someone sent me an article from the Virginian pilot about one of Marcus's former teammates and his brain autopsy had been released and they did an article about the findings It was uh, the first time I had heard about interface astroglial scarring. Someone had also thrown around the concussion disease and chronic traumatic encephalopathy. I don't know if he did or did not have that. I don't think he did. But, um, you know, these things got me thinking like, oh, my goodness, this is more than PTSD. This might be outside of Marcus's control. It was so for the next year, I started getting him into programs that were outside of the VA, that were outside of mainstream medicine and, you know, hyperbaric oxygen and magnets on the brain and um, some, some other holistic brain center type, you know, uh, places that were really good at diagnostics, but there really wasn't a lot of follow through. So as I'm seeing his struggles from a physiological perspective, and I've worked through my trauma, I'm working through my trauma you know, I'm becoming more centered in the storm. I'm now able to see things like for what they are and not through this clouded victimhood set of lenses. And I'm like, oh gosh, we have a problem here. And so the brain clinics were not proving to be incredibly helpful. At that point, a pastor from our church, Caden was in the hospital And he came to visit and he said, he said to me um, out in the hall, the enemy is going to try to get to you through Marcus and Caden. Do not let either one of them knock you off track. 
he said, your life has an anointing over it and you need to just keep moving forward and do not get caught up in what they've got going on because they, it was just like a ping pong, like ding, ding, ding. Now this one, now that one, now if it's not health, it's behavior, it's drinking, it's this, it's that. Um, so this too is all happening as I was becoming this kind of like eye of the storm. Two weeks after that, one of Marcus's friends said, I need to come over and tell you something. Can I come, can I come, you know, right now? And he, got, he sat across from me and he looked at me and he said, I just have to tell you to your face. The enemy is going to try to get to you through Marcus and Caden. Do not let that happen. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Okay. Well, this is clearly, you know, this is clearly like spiritual warfare too. And the next year was terrible. Everything was escalating. That was 2016 by 2017. We were pretty much out of hope. That same pastor who had said this to me in the hospital contacted Marcus and said, it is just heavy on my heart that you, your family is going to need financial support. And we would like to give you a gift from the church for the upcoming months. And I'm thinking, oh crap, what does this mean? Well, that gift allowed us to pay our mortgage, stay current with that. And, you know, I, I wasn't working. Marcus wasn't working. He committed to going out for a number of weeks. He ended up staying like double the time. He just, you know, he was just desperate at that point. So he went to a brain clinic and um, he was showing up, you know, for an hour a day of therapy. And then he was doing hyperbarics and it really was causing even more frustration because he wasn't feeling, if anything, he was feeling more on edge. I mean, at this point he had become highly activated at any, any, the mention of anything, you know, you, you couldn't tell him anything because he was just so jazzed all the time. And he was, you know, forgetful. He had horrible headaches. He was depressed. He was hopeless. And as he would spend weeks of his life at these places you know, he would leave and not really have any answers. And then he was getting, you know, more and more disheartened and frustrated. But what the gift from the church did for us was, and we had no clue at the time that this was going to be the case, but he ended up going um, to this brain center and having to be away from work for weeks. And so, you know, in, in hindsight, I see that that was the, the sustainment that we needed at that time. And that was the time that we realized, I realized this is not working. The, the approach that he'd been taking from 2008 to 2015, 16, that didn't work. And when we shifted into more uh, alternative type treatments, that was the hope we had, that didn't work. Our daughter at one point had said to me, mom, how much longer do we have to do this? And she was crying and she was just, you know, I felt like as a parent, I had to choose our kids or Marcus. And of course I chose them. I would choose them. They're my children. But I also knew that by choosing them, I could potentially be opening them up to a lifetime without their dad because he was not stable enough to be on his own. He was not, he needed the stabilizing force of our family. So when she said that to me, I arranged for him to leave. 
um, to go to this brain place for, it was supposed to be six weeks. He ended up leaving in June of 2017 and he got an extension, but he was running out of funding. And so it, I knew that we were going to have to make a decision and life had been peaceful without him in the house for several months. And I just thought there's absolutely no way that I can, that I can have him back in this house. I'd gone to visit him a couple of times. And um, <clears throat> the last time I went to visit him, he was so unhinged that I left without even telling him. When I came home, this was in September of 2017. I came home and I conference called my dad or my dad called me. I put it on speaker and my mom was there. She had watched the kids for me to go. And I told them that I was going to have to quit, that Marcus would probably be dead within five years. I, I was working on forgiving myself for that because it felt like we had tried everything. And at the same time, I knew that, you know, I didn't want that. I, I never wanted to leave him. I never wanted, I, I felt like he was a dead man if I did. And I still loved him because I, you know, he'd kind of he'd become a monster, but I, I didn't forget the good times. You know, I didn't forget who I knew he was. And God had conditioned my heart in such a way that seeing him through these eyes of grace where, you know, I went back to my childhood and who God created me to be and who I'm convicted, you know, just as convicted in who I am today, the same was ringing true for him. I knew that in, I knew him, I knew his spirit was good. His, he, he is good, but these circumstances seemed insurmountable yet nothing's insurmountable with God. And I'm having this quiet time every day and I'm getting all these downloads and it feels like, it feels like I need to quit. Like my flesh is like quit, even though I don't generally quit things. I felt like I don't have a choice, but my spirit didn't want to quit. And I'm thinking in the flesh, well, I've got to choose my children, but in the spirit, I'm thinking I've got to save Marcus. So thank goodness. At that point I had been a good 18 months of personal self. You know, I was in a really good place and I was still working with my therapist and you know, I'd come into her office and she'd be like, Oh my gosh, like, can anything else happen in your life? You know, it was just every, every area was out of control, but I was feeling like there was something more. How did y'all ultimately find a path to psychedelics? And maybe before you mention that, what was y'all's perception of psychedelic medicine or substances before you found that path? So the only way that I even knew about this was a seal and his wife that I had become close with because I had sold them a home. He had struggles as well. And he had actually helped Marcus through some of his struggles and he had you know, mentored him and been a good friend to him. And she had been a good friend to me. And they knew that we were going through some things and she reached out to me and told me about this treatment that her husband did. And then I talked to him and, you know, he said to me from the very beginning, he's got to want this and he's got to be ready for this. And so I approached Marcus about this a year before he actually did it, or probably more, more than a year. And at that time he was like, uh, no, that's crazy. Like, no, <laughs> 
just the thought of going to Mexico alone, he was just like, that's a non-starter. I'm not doing that. And that sounds nuts. And I don't do drugs and don't even ask, don't ever ask me that again. So it was always in the back of my mind, but I'd kind of forgotten about it. And during my quiet time, as I'm getting all these kind of like, you know, supernatural downloads, if you will, I thought of that again. And I reached out to him and he's like, hey, if he's ready, if he's ready, then we'll do it. I brought it up to Marcus again earlier in the summer and he was not having it still. But he was also running out of funding and he was going to have to come home in October. So he'd been gone from June to October and I'd visited him twice. He'd been home once. So we saw each other three times and, you know, I really felt like I was talking to a stranger because we weren't together. We weren't even really talking. If he called me, it was debate me and start a fight. Yet this time away from him allowed me to have even more grace and compassion. So when he came home, I sat him down because I wanted to do it face to face. And I had very, very shortly before that, I had told my parents that I had decided to quit and I was moving forward with plans to do that. But I didn't want to close the door on him completely. And so when he came home, I sat him down and I, I said, Marcus, this is not sustainable, but I love you. And I will fight with you every day. I will fight for you every day for the rest of your life, but you have to fight with me and I'll never leave your side. And when I stopped the blaming and shaming and guilt approach and I approached him in grace and love and compassion, he completely melted. And I said, you know, here are my hard boundaries. If you don't cross these, I won't ever leave your side. Let's do this together. Please consider this one last option. I thought if anything, I want to know I've tried it all. I want to know I tried everything. If the worst happens, then there will be no regrets that I could have done more. And so he's like, I don't know. I I mean, I, I, I'll do it. I don't know what you think it's going to do because nothing has worked. And we arranged for him to leave. No, he wasn't working at the time because he'd been at the brain clinic for all these months. And so he was basically just sitting around waiting for a retreat date. He also had to come off all of his medications and, you know, that was really challenging But as the date grew nearer, he would get more and more anxious. And then it kept getting like delayed and delayed and pushed. And I could tell he was becoming despondent. And so at the end, I was begging him to just please hold on, you know, just please go give this a shot. We'll get you down there. The date keeps changing, but you've got to keep holding on. And I'm like counting down with like five more days, three more days. So I finally got him on the plane and I just completely broke down. And I, I was like, all right, God, like, this is it. This is all I have left. I didn't know. I didn't really put any thought into psychedelics, plants, like any of who would be present. Didn't look at research. I just trusted this one other seal and his spouse. And the results on the back end were seemingly miraculous like pretty much overnight well i'm going to include with the episode some links to places where people can find marcus tell his story 
um, of what happened there. Let's move past that and tell us your thoughts about while he was there, what were your hopes and expectations and what ultimately happened when you saw him after that experience? I was really triggered on the way to see him. And I always felt like, like, you know, there was like a, a voice that he was, that it was like such a lie straight out of the pit of hell. And I was always in opposition with this voice that, you know, he would like verbalize the thoughts that were so detrimental. And it was just like, it wasn't even him. It was just like, just this spewing this like hatred. And it was so just lies. And I wanted that voice to just be silenced. I didn't know, you know, what sort of spiritual warfare was going on around him, but I felt the need to pray over him and just speak life into him and, going down I you know after his treatment I was just hit with this like what have we just done you know what if this is the complete opposite of what I've been praying for and I started to have these fears of you know what what was what this experience would be like but when I saw him he was pretty much identical to the he was identical to the guy that I met like he was just back he was pure his eyes were clearer and lighter and brighter and everything about him was just lighter he seemed exactly the way I met him in 1997 and it totally blew my mind and so his countenance was just pure and it was blissful And I found myself slipping back into this fear periodically about what we had done. It wouldn't last. Um, It's too good to be true. Keep the guard up on your heart because you're just going to get hurt. This is going to be like everything else. It's not going to last. So after his experience, and it was, it was so impactful. He, he says that it was like taking off a thousand pounds off his back, you know, he, he dealt with a lot of the trauma that he had been carrying and um, he just felt lighter. Back in the States, after the treatment, I really, really, really started to give into the fear. And this is where my therapist came in. So she took me through weeks of exercises in what just happened. Because when you're in survival mode, you will do anything to save someone you love. I would have tried anything. Um, And, you know, what ended up working was considered a drug in my mind. And I just couldn't get past that. So Diana, my therapist was really amazing at walking me through, you know, the, the, the whole experience from like, the get-go and some of the things, you know, as a Christian that I could appreciate were things as simple as, you know, is this a plant? Do you feel that for every ailment God has created a cure? I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. Okay. At what point did you start believing that a plant was a drug, but a pill was a cure? 
I'm like, oh my gosh, yeah, I had totally had to rewrite that in my mind. And then she, the very first thing she said to me was, were your prayers answered? And I was like, yes, I've been praying for exactly this. And how did I come to this in my quiet time? And how did my quiet time, how impactful has my quiet time been in my life? It's everything. She said, um, who are you to say what God's intention for this particular plant was? You know, who, who discovered that there's, that aloe is great for a sunburn? You know, who, who discovered that um, basil is great in pasta sauce? Like, you know, you've got to look at plants differently. You've got to, you know, maybe this was God's intended purpose for it. Who are you to say? And then I'm like, yeah, and who am I to put God in a box? Because if you look around, there's variety, there's, there's species of every kind. There's, you know, beauty everywhere. There's a million plants. There's a million species of animals and trees. And like, it's also beautiful. It's also perfect. So maybe this is, I'm not going to put God in a box. And then it kind of morphed into, you know, this is exactly what the division over Jesus was that healing didn't look like people of his day thought it should because of their own fleshly perceptions of what God should be. So if I'm not putting God in a box and I know God is a God of massive variety and healing and love, and that is what my family has experienced and Jesus too, the same could be said for Jesus, like, you know, not looking like what everyone thought healing should look like, then maybe this is worth seeing through because at that point we were raising money for our friends. And I tried to get off this path so many times because of stigma and misperception and just all of the, the issues surrounding psychedelics. But I was seeing what it was doing for our friends. And part of me is like, I don't want my reputation. I don't, I don't want to talk about this. And I don't want to talk about our struggles because in the SEAL community, you don't do that. But I was also feeling like really convicted by what I was seeing. I was afraid to believe it could last. I was afraid to believe that it could work for more than just Marcus, but I wanted to at least give it a shot. And all along the way, I would the fear would come back in and I would start to, you know, think about getting off the path or try to get off the path, go back to real estate, just enjoy Marcus, take care of Caden. And I kept getting put right back on the path. So, you know, as I'm seeing our friends have the exact same experiences and Diana was at some point, like, you know, you know, where fear comes from. So why are you giving into fear? And if your prayers were answered and you're seeing it replicated amongst your friends, how's that bad? She had asked me to write in my journal things that came to mind um, during like this, you know, the, the worst times. She asked me, you know, describe in scenery how you feel. And I wrote, you know, despair, depression, darkness, anger, clouds, doom, gloom, all of these things that felt inescapable. And if I did that exercise from the vantage point that I was sitting in weeks after Marcus's treatment, I would say light, hopeful, emerging, ascending, peace, 
um, purpose because we're starting to help our friends and they're experiencing those things. And she was like, think about this at the most basic level. Your husband's life was saved. Your family was saved. It's saving the lives of your friends. Your marriage is saved. All of those things are of God. How can that be bad? This is someone who has no idea about psychedelics or plant medicines or, you know, any of that. She's just totally unpacking my real life experience in a way that was practical and really helped me become grounded. And even still then I was like, okay, well it's working, but I don't want the world to know. And I was stigma. Yeah. Like if it was a pharmaceutical, we'd all be raving about it. Like this helps, you know, go buy this. Right. Right. Yet I was, you know, praying like very specific prayers that had seemingly been answered when Marcus's cognition was returning his our communication was getting better he was interacting with the kids he was we felt like we could you know breathe finally around him yet I was still trying to talk myself out of why I should share that and why I would publicly support it um so we're trying to do everything below the radar and at that point, you know, I, I knew that this saved Marcus's life, but I was afraid to like jinx it. I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to, I didn't, I didn't know, you know, if it would work for everyone. I didn't want to go on the record saying it would. And so um, I wanted 12 months to go by. I wanted 12 other teammates, SEALs to have the same experience, um, Marcus's teammates. And at the 11 and a half month mark, one of my best friend's husbands took his life and I was just overcome with this incredible sadness that maybe if we would have talked about it and we had worked harder to break the stigma because we knew at that point it worked maybe if he knew that this could be an option he would have held on at that point I you know sitting in his funeral and at that point I was overcome with the feeling of you know they're all hearing this voice they're all under the same sort of spiritual assault, like taking themselves out of the fight. This is the next war. This is the invisible war that they're all fighting. And yet no one's even talking about it, let alone forming a battle plan. And they're all fighting it alone. They're all fighting it alone. And there's no team. Remember- Your team's not in there with you, you know, to fight the mission. You're just there alone all by yourself. Right. That's exactly right. And I, one of my favorite pastors had said in a church service, you know, when the enemy, when any enemy strikes, they try to get the prey away from the pack and you're, you know, you're so much more susceptible to an enemy attack or, you know, to become prey when you're on your own, that made a lot of sense to me. And so you, you know, you have this veteran suicide epidemic where they're leaving community, they're leaving pack. And then it's also so stigmatized to talk about, struggles and then you put you know this insidious voice of like your your wife would be better off without you your your life has no purpose do your family a favor and don't be a burden to them anymore this is the voice that marcus was fighting that he now knows is a total liar but you know they're all i I realized at the funeral like i think they might all be fighting this and this will be the next wave of funerals and i don't ever want to be in this chapel again and 
at that point, we just decided to start sharing our story and speaking out and trying to do whatever we can to save lives. So how did you, you get that ball rolling? How do you advertise, quote unquote, that someone go and do something that is in the United States illegal? And not only, you're not just recommending this to random people, but these are very, probably many of them are, are people who have like Christian faith. They've been brought up in the war on drugs. They're very, you know, concerned about, you know, being, doing things legally and law, you know, these are law abiding citizens. How do you broach that subject with people? I assume if they're in the position you were in, where they're pretty much rock bottom, deep desperation, I guess that, unfortunately, that's like a weakness in, in a way where you can explain to people where otherwise they might not consider such a, a, you know, a nuclear option. It definitely was a nuclear option. Um, at that point, we had definitely helped more than 12 other individuals. We had begun raising money. And ironically, like all this is happening just at the perfect time of our lives when our son was um, graduating high school and our daughter was just able to drive. So I was able to take my work ethic from real estate and pivot that into building bets. And I still got the best years of my kids' lives with them, you know, as, as basically like their, their constant steady. I work a ton now, but I would never trade those years and the circumstances that brought us to that point. When, I, when we decided to speak out, we had no idea how we would start doing it. We just knew that we needed to, to do it, at least within our community. And as word started to spread, more and more people started to utilize the nuclear option, the need for funding became even more critical. And fundraising doesn't happen in a vacuum. We could put out word in the SEAL community in a vacuum, but we can't mm -hmm. fundraise in a vacuum. And so my first hire was a PR professional to help get us some podcasts and speaking opportunities to, to share our message. And I think that, you know, on one hand, it can be alienating, uh, especially in the more conservative crowds that are patriots, but they're kind of like, wait, psychedelics. And then we had the psychedelic science crowd that was like, yay, psychedelic science, but veterans. <laughs> so we were in this conundrum initially of which side of the aisle to target for support and fundraising and whatnot. And then, you know, we realized quickly that we've been blessed with being able to get support from both. So as the fundraising started to match the need and more and more veterans were able to come through the program, we just, you know, we just continually started like a growth mindset of we've got to help all veterans because everyone who gets funding from us refers two to five of their friends because that's the nature of our community is, you know, giving back to one another, helping one another, never leaving anyone behind. And we have such a love and respect for one another, whether it's spouses or the guys in the SEAL community, we just take care of one another. So it became this community wide effort. It has just been the most beautiful thing. Well, I mean, to see someone so miraculously impacted, you know, I'm sure that that word of mouth just snowballs, you know, when two people and then it's six people and then it's 14 people and then 25 people. And so everyone's telling their friends and relatives and they're seeing 
major positive impact in the lives of their families and loved ones, I mean, you can't help but share that kind of, you know, positive news. Yeah, the ripple out effect has been amazing. And I'll, I will tell you, it has not been anything that we have done. This has been supernaturally blessed by the hand of God. And it has taken me a long time to even feel comfortable saying that because culture and society would tell us that this is the opposite of that. But I have seen it and I am so convicted in saying that, that the, the doom gloom scenario would be applicable to probably 95% of our grant recipients. And I know so many of them, um, the vast, vast majority of them that are thriving and they deserve that. So, you know, you go from like considering suicide to how like one of our recent grant recipients was like, I can't believe that I was, if this didn't work, I was going to go home and kill myself. I, I have so much to live for. I can't wait to live the rest of my life. It's like that sort of a market shift and turnaround is only of God. Like I just, I don't know how to describe it. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> right. Well, it has other, I don't think I mentioned this to you in any of our email conversations, but it has other ripple effects, you know, Y'all are one of the reasons I started this show. Um, oh, I, I, was, I, I was spending a lot of time, you know, studying the impact of psychedelic medicine because I had psychedelic experiences in my youth and those things never left me. And even though, you know, I was living this work a day, you know, Christian dad family lifestyle, um, I still kept investigating. You know, I read things online. I listened to podcasts and, but I couldn't talk to anybody because of, I guess, of stigma, you know, it was, it was difficult in, you know, the culture and the, the Christian environment in which I lived and, and, and acted that to have a conversation about psych psychedelics is, is not exactly, you know, a daily occurrence or even a <laughs> yearly occurrence. So, I was listening to, I think it was Psychedelics Today, uh, the podcast, and you and Marcus were on there. And I was like, yeah, here's another great story of someone finding, you know, help with psychedelics. And you mentioned something about your Christian faith. You know, you didn't delve deep into it, but you mentioned that. And I thought there's got to be people who want to share these stories. And there's no, there's no venue, at least that I could find, for people to do that. So I finally mustered up the gumption to, <laughs> to you know, to throw y'all a line and, and ask if y'all would be willing to come on. And um, and I'm really thankful you did. I think this is a, a beautiful story that uh, everyone needs to hear. It's interesting to me, Clint, that um, you know, there, there's, the, the Bible to me is absolutely, core fundamental alive incredible the prophecy the the stories the character the convention the conviction the faith and grace and everything that is in the pages of the bible front to back um there are things in the bible that i i think you know about the burning bush the book of revelations and i'm like this is 
pretty powerful if, if you think about it from just a visionary perspective. Um, makes you wonder if there was, you know, if there was ancient medicine use back in biblical days. I'm not saying there is or isn't, but I'm saying that it, it definitely makes you wonder um, mm. because I have seen too many veterans, spouses come out of say a 5-MEO DMT experience, like they're coming away from a burning bush. I mean, they're just on fire for God. Not everyone has a great experience with 5-MEO DMT, but it is called the God molecule or spirit molecule for a reason. Marcus had an amazing 5-MEO experience um, just a couple of months ago. He does an annual reset. And this was like the most impactful, meaningful experience to him. And my faith has driven me and us and this entire mission all along, but he was really lacking in that department. Someone had asked him the day before, are you spiritual? And he's like, I don't know. I try. But after that experience, he's like, oh, I know there's a God. There's undoubtedly a God. And this is just flesh and human stuff. And none of that matters. You know, it's our spirit. It's love. We're all connected. It's all everything. It's all God. I see that in the work we're doing, the common thread amongst what's happening is just this return of light. And I have felt for a really long time that our community in particular has been under attack and this light reemerging is beautiful to witness. There are a lot of Christians, Christians who have turned away from faith, atheists, agnostics, like they have come through our program. And if they're not a hundred percent certain on the other side of treatment that there is a God, they're at least going, I didn't think that there was a God before. And now I think there might be. We've seen everything from that to, you know, sitting at the feet of Jesus. Like it's, it's crazy what these experiences are um, uncovering. And this has been around forever. You know, the, the term entheogen actually is another way of saying one with God. Psychedelics are also referred to as entheogens. Most um, entheogens, of course, uh, would be plants, not necessarily anything manufactured in a lab. But, um, you know, there is a real spiritual connection happening in these medicines that are from God. I mean, they are they are plants on this earth that are getting at a real issue affecting so many people. I mean, I cannot believe our suicide statistics in this country around the globe. I cannot believe that we're fighting the veteran suicide epidemic with medications linked to suicide. Um, And then I see something as simple as a plant that grows out of the ground, completely unadulterated in some cases, having such a radical, profound impact on someone, um, turning around the, the thought of ending their life, giving them hope and purpose again, putting them on their feet to um, be better family men and women and just being, you know, all around better humans. It is truly, truly a miracle. Sounds miraculous. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty powerful. There's no denying it. And I've seen it so many times now that I'm like, I just, I think we're just going to stop trying to be politically correct and just say it. Like, I think this is 
1000% blessed directly by the hand of God. What we've been able to accomplish as an organization so far in such a short amount of time is truly blessed. I, we could never have done this on our own. It's only, it's only through this incredible supernatural blessing that we've been able to do this work. I, I take absolutely zero credit for it. I've only allowed myself to be a conduit of a bigger purpose. It hasn't always been easy. I've definitely wanted to run and hide. Um, it's not something that I ever thought I'd be in the public spotlight promoting but I see how it's affecting and impacting lives. And I just feel like this is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. And so I'm just surrendered to that. Well, I admire y'all for doing it. It would have been, I'm sure it would have been very easy to just return to your careers, focus only on your own family and your own, you know, career and faith trajectory and, and not put yourself up to such scrutiny and, and go through this gauntlet of, of fundraising and legal situations and totally and so uh, i'm i'm grateful that y'all are willing to represent this community so we we might have even glossed over it very quickly your organization is vets v-e-t-s what does that stand for well we went back and forth between veteran veteran entheogenic treatment solutions um we landed on veterans exploring treatment solutions because we thought that it was a little bit more palatable for anyone who might be adverse of course the psychedelic movement has just um, sprung up all around us all of this is just synergistically really incredible timing very appropriate timing um, with everything going on in the world that's is an organization that provides funding to veterans who are seeking psychedelic assisted therapies in countries where they're legal or unregulated we're not providing the treatments or diagnosing prescribing in any way we are giving veterans the tools to choose the treatment that seems best for them and um, providing them funding to go seek it most of them are plants not all but uh, several of them are you know organic in nature and um, saving lives day in and day out how many people have y'all been able to assist so far I've lost count. It's definitely over 500. Wow. Yeah, about 150. We raised funding for about 150 in the grassroots portion. Of course, that was strictly just handing money over and getting people through the, the one particular protocol. We have since expanded. We can provide funding directly to veterans for six different modalities. Um, and only ketamine is available in the United States. Of course, there's research going on. It's interesting because uh, as opposed to a pharmaceutical, which most veterans are on the lifetime prescription model of pharmaceuticals, they're coming off of them and many are not returning to using them. And this experience with a psychedelic or entheogen is exactly what they need. Uh, and psychedelics are really key at deactivating the default mode network, which is the region of the brain that houses the ego. Ego is just our ability to concoct stories and protect and, you know, get, get um, the walls put up so we don't have to deal with trauma. Once that's deactivated and the trauma surfaces, there's 
just this incredible weight lifted. Um, most psychedelics are very physiologically sound. Ibogaine is one of the exceptions to that. There's cardiac risks and, you know, going to safe vetted retreat centers is really important, but, um, you know, most people are choosing the psychedelic experience based on, you know, personal preference, whether they just, maybe they don't want to leave the United States. Well, then it's ketamine or research. Maybe they really want a jungle setting and a very ceremonial type setting. Well, that might be ayahuasca or iboga or 5-MEO. Um, maybe they don't want to be in an experience for up to 24 hours. So maybe, or 12 hours, maybe that's psilocybin. Um, so we have an e-course on our website for anyone. You don't have to be a veteran to go and learn about psychedelics 101 and then um, how psychedelics are directly combating uh, issues facing veterans. Ibogaine and 5-MEO is the combination that most of our grant recipients are pursuing. Uh, both are organic in nature. One can be uh, synthesized in a lab because the 5-MEO uh, DMT is from the Bufo Alvarez toad, which is, um, you know, we, if you don't have to hurt a toad, you shouldn't. And a lot of people are harvesting these toads to get the glandular secretions. But um, the Ibogaine and 5-MeO combo is really effective because it's Ibogaine is a wake and dream state, taking you back through traumatic events or memories throughout your life for the most part. They're not all the same experiences, but it can be traumatic. It can, you know, reliving those things is tough for some. And then 5-MeO DMT is like opening the door to the future. It is like I mentioned before, the God molecule, the spirit molecule, um, giving people the passion to live again and see their lives from a different lens, um, excitement about life and being and love. So that's good. And, and, you know, Marcus is no different. He's a better version of himself. His trauma is released. His thinking is clear. His mood is stabilized. Like so much of that had to do with just accessing that trauma, which for him also went back to childhood. And then, you know, gaining insight on the rest of his life. Like it can have purpose outside of the SEAL community. Um, psychedelics are generally working for the veterans we serve in four key areas, which is psychological trauma purging. Ibogaine in particular is very anti-addictive. So any sort of addiction is typically, it's resetting those receptors in the brain. It, it Ibogaine is also incredibly neuroregenerative. So for traumatic brain injury and those issues that I was seeing in Marcus cognitively, those have all been uh, seemingly addressed. And then there's the spiritual component, which is just that reconnection with God. I've been to a lot of psychedelic conferences. I've been to a lot of places where there's very experienced lifelong psychonauts that are still walking around with a clear missing need. I personally believe that not everyone needs psychedelics, but everyone has a God-sized hole in their heart. Psychedelics aren't going to fill that. You know, someone is given the tools, maybe through a psychedelic experience to experience the divine or to have a better understanding that we're all part of the same thing. It's all love. It's all alive. It's, it's, you know, we're all connected. You can get that understanding without psychedelics, but psychedelics are basically like a rocket ship to get there. But everyone has this God-sized hole. Marcus's God-sized hole, despite all the psychedelic um, 
resets that he's done over the last five years, which is like, you know, maybe five at this point, just now did he have that God breakthrough where he's like, okay, I was trauma purging. Yes. I was feeling better. Yes. But the God piece, he was still questioning until this last time. But like, I went back to the well every single day and I kept showing up for myself. He's done the same and he's finally there. And so we finally have this spiritual piece to share after 25 years together, which is amazing. It never would have been possible without this experience. Well, when you were telling me about being at the uh, near the rock bottom and going into your your study of the Bible and yourself, it sounds like although I've, I've heard you say elsewhere that you haven't personally had any psychedelic medicine experiences when you were explaining that going through your life, going down to the rock bottom, you know, studying the Bible every morning, it sounds like maybe your psychedelic experience was just stretched out over about a two year period. And <laughs> yeah. Marcus had his in like a 12 hour period. Um, That's right. That's exactly right. Because I connected with first God and then myself and then everything around. And you're exactly right. That's why I always say not everyone needs psychedelics, but if you, you know, if you really open yourself up to the work, you can get there a lot faster. Right. And someone in Marcus's situations probably didn't have the wherewithal no to plan to do a two-year you know once a morning bible study and get to the bottom of his issues um yeah needed something to reach in and 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 force that mechanism maybe that's exactly right that's exactly right he had to have that and some people do and you know maybe i would have had a much more potent powerful faster experience if i did that I think that to your point, it's not always like it's not always possible to attain that once you've hit a certain point. And he certainly was there. He needed the nuclear option for sure. Well, Amber, I don't want to keep you all day, although there's a hundred <laughs> other, other questions I'd love uh, to ask y'all. Um, I just want you to know, I really thank you for coming here today and sharing your journey. And I'm going to link um, everything I possibly can to, uh, to the website uh, where people can find vets and uh, learn more. Um, is there you. any information you have parting? And in particular, what's the quickest way people can find to support vets? I know I'm, I'm going to make some donations and I'm going to encourage my listeners to. Um, I think y'all are offering people powerful hope. Um, so many of these people who've served their country, served all, you know, all of us. And whenever they find themselves in this deep, dark place, we've got nothing to do for them or nothing to give them, no, no, no way of helping them. And I think y'all are offering them a powerful opportunity. So how can people help? Um, the best place to go would probably be to our website, which is vetsolutions.org. 
you can find information about our programs, our application, our donation tab, our story, videos and news, uh, other podcasts we've done. I will certainly direct people to your podcast because this is a topic that is so near and dear to me. It's my favorite thing in the world to talk about because my faith has become everything to me. And I just want to encourage, I guess, in closing anyone who is experiencing the darkest days of their lives to keep going, to look up and to know that these days could potentially unfold into your life's purpose. And they're absolutely necessary. I see in, in all the work that we're doing today, nothing we would not, nothing that we are doing today would be made possible without understanding the depths of that darkness and how close we came to that line of never going back. And someone said to me, I've had so many people so many supernatural things happen. So many people prophesy over me. Uh, aside from those two gentlemen who told me the exact same thing and during the exact same period of my life, um, I have another woman who's prophesied some things over me that have been so meaningful. And at one point, you know, she just said, "You keep your eye on what God is calling you to do. You trust your intuition, and you just do not let fear creep in and keep." keep going. Do not even worry about Marcus. You can't save him. Only God can save him. And you thinking that you can is making you play God uh, and taking your, your focus away from, you know, your, your true calling, which was a lot for me to wrap my head around, but I had to realize that Marcus was dealing with God. I'm sorry, that God was dealing with Marcus and that had to happen in his time. He had to be completely prepared and ready for that. There's nothing that I could have done, but I had to stay true to my calling and my purpose. When anyone surrenders what they have envisioned for their life and allows God to step in and create, you know, this incredible purpose that you never could have imagined, getting outside your comfort zone and taking those steps of faith could lead to the most meaningful work you've ever even imagined and that's exactly i mean i have done nothing except surrender <laughs> well thank you so much for doing so y'all are uh, in my prayers every day and i look forward to uh the positive impact you're making now and in the years ahead thank, Amber you, so Capone, much. thank you for joining me today and uh hopefully we'll speak again soon that sounds great, Clint. Thank you for what you're doing. I'm so excited for your podcast and I will share far and wide. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye-bye. I would like to once again express my appreciation to Amber for sharing her journey of faith in Christ and how psychedelic medicine made such a positive impact on the life of her family. I really believe in the work that VETS is doing. And I think that the evidence of over 500 veterans finding relief from their suffering speaks for itself. I have made a donation to vets, and I hope that you will consider making one as well. Many of our veterans have tried every other available option to no avail, and vets is offering our veterans an opportunity for positive change. But that opportunity requires funding, which most of our veterans do not have. So please consider a generous contribution to make these opportunities possible. 
You can donate and learn much more by visiting their website, vetsolutions.org. There you can also find content and videos to share with others to expand awareness of the positive healing potential of psychedelic medicine. Also, please consider a donation to the Psychedelic Christian Podcast and help me produce more content in the future by visiting the Psychedelic Christian Podcast slash support. So until our next episode, exploring the intersection of Christian faith and psychedelics, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Mm-hmm.